Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 10th, 2023 read, Friday reading of the Colorado Springs Gazette. My name is Raymond Wallander. Today we will be reading miscellaneous articles including editorials and letters to the editor. We begin with some long-awaited news, sort of, as Kendall explains a space command delay. An additional analysis is needed to ensure site selection is right, the Air Force Secretary says at a symposium. Ernest Looning of ColoradoPolitics.com brings us the story. The Air Force is postponing its long-awaited announcement whether to move the headquarters of U.S. Space Command to Alabama or keep it in Colorado while the service conducts some additional analysis, quote. The Air Force Secretary said that this week at a conference in Aurora. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said to expect a decision fairly soon. After completion of additional review, according to a report by Military.Command, I hoped to make a decision and make an announcement earlier, Kendall said Tuesday at an Air and Space Force Association symposium. We're doing some additional analysis. We want to make very sure we got this right and have a well-defended decision. Kendall said the Air Force is conducting a sensitive analysis, financial modeling that considers risk based on various scenarios, and expand, examining whether to put a second Commandant Command in Colorado, which is home to U.S. Northern Command. The site's permanent location has been in limbo for more than two years since the surprise announcement in the waning days of the Trump administration that the headquarters would move to the Army's Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama from its temporary home at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado Springs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colorado lawmakers cried foul, charging that the decision was based on political rather than national security reasons and spurring the Biden administration to commence a review process that appears to be ongoing. In late November, General James Dickinson, commander of U.S. Space Command, said a final determination was imminent. But months have passed without word. On Wednesday, U.S. Representative Doug Lamborn, Republican of Colorado Springs, and chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, asked Dickinson in a hearing whether to a move to Alabama would delay Space Command's reaching full operational capacity. We're on the glide path right now, moving aggressively towards full operational capability in the provisional headquarters and infrastructure that I have in Colorado Springs right now, Dickinson responded. Lamborn and other members of Colorado Congressional Delegation have argued that moving the headquarters to Huntsville will, be, will result in unacceptable delays in bringing the command up to full throttle, as well as incur significant additional costs compared to renovating a facility at Peterson. That's one argument made in a letter sent on Wednesday to President Joe Biden by 94 Colorado officials, business leaders, and military personnel, including Governor Jared Polis, U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, seven of the state's eight U.S. House members, legislative leadership, 
and Colorado Springs Mayor's John Southers. Colorado is the best and only home for U.S. Space Command, the letter read. Two years later, U.S. Spacecom has continued to prove its ability to ensure our national security in the space domain from Peterson Space Force Base. Lamborn said Thursday in a written statement that he was concerned that the decision was dragging on. Every day the Air Force continues to delay the U.S. Space Command basing decision is another day that our space forces are unable to best organize to conduct space operations, he said. I am eager to hear from the Air Force about how the additional analysis they claim they are doing addresses the gaps from the previous basing assessment, specifically the time it will take to reach full operational capability and the readiness challenges the command would face should the headquarters move. Hickenlooper said Thursday that news about the latest delay in the decision-making process didn't change anything. Any objective analysis will show what we've argued the last two years, that senior military leaders identified Peterson Space Force Base as their top choice for Space Command's headquarters, he said in a written statement. They did so because it will reach full operational capability faster than any other location, cost less, and minimize attrition and disruption to the mission, all of which are critical to our national security. Instead of following that recommendation, President Trump put politics first and sent U.S. Space Command to Alabama. But Trump's decision isn't final. We strongly encourage the Air Force to take politics out of the process and ensure Space Command stays in Colorado Springs the best choice for military readiness. Wayne Williams is accused of campaign violation as a mayoral hopeful denies the charge lodged by a group. Brianna Gent brings us the story. The Colorado Springs City Clerk is investigating a complaint that mayoral candidate Wayne Williams might have violated a city campaign code. A nonpartisan resident group called Integrity Matters filed a complaint with the city attorney's office on Wednesday asking it to investigate whether Williams, a city councilman, violated city code by partially depicting Colorado Springs Fire Department firefighters at a training facility and a fire truck at a firehouse in 6-second, 15-second, and 30-second versions of a campaign ad he is airing on Facebook. City Clerk's Office spokeswoman Jennifer Schroeder said Thursday the city attorney forwarded the complaint to the clerk. The complaint alleges Williams' ad unethically ties his campaign to city resources and gives the appearance that a Colorado Springs Fire Department, which is a city department, is in support of his campaign. The group said it believed Williams violated a section of city code prohibiting the use of city resources to support or oppose directly or indirectly a person running for office, the retention of a person who is the subject of a recall election or an election issue. The code defines city resources as funds, assets, or any other resources owned, controlled, or otherwise used by the city, as well as individuals acting on city time or with the city. The city code is quite clear that you cannot use city resources to make any kind of political campaign, 
Integrity Matters President John Pitchford said. Integrity Matters member Dana Duggan said the group's biggest concern is that the ad could give viewers the impression the city is backing a certain candidate. Branding works for a reason, said Duggan, who previously worked for media companies such as Nielsen Media Research and Lifetime Television, among others. Williams on Thursday denied the allegation and called it absurd. There is not any official city position, he said, though the Professional Firefighters Association, IAFF Local 5, has endorsed him Williams said the group is backing him in their individual capacity as a union, not as city employees. Williams' campaign team reached out to the fire department to discuss filming the ad and then followed all the instructions they were given, he said. On Wednesday, a representative for Williams' campaign told Gazette News partner KKTV it had consulted with attorneys about the ad and were confident they were following the rules. Williams told the Gazette he will continue running all three versions of the ad and questioned the timing of the complaint. These ads have been running for several weeks, so it's obviously a publicity stunt designed to occur right as the ballots were going out, he said. In August, Pitchford and Integrity Matters attempted to recall Williams because of his appearance with Secretary of State Jenna Griswold in a public service announcement promoting trust in the elections process. Residents criticized the announcement for using over $1 million in federal election assistance funds to air 15- and 30-second versions of the ad statewide for two weeks. The recall campaign didn't receive enough signatures, and the group in November said it would shift to opposing Williams' mayoral bid. Another mayoral candidate, Sally Clark, is running an ad partially depicting fire trucks, firefighting equipment, and a firehouse, though no logos are clearly visible. Schroeder said the city clerk's office has not received a similar complaint against Clark or any other candidate. Clark said Thursday she filmed her ad in South Carolina after she reached out to the Colorado Springs Fire Department, which told her she could not film in front of the fire museum at 375 Printers Parkway. In a February 7th email to Clark, obtained by the Gazette, Fire Department Deputy Chief of Support Services, Steve Dubay, refers to the same section of city code regarding the use of city resources to campaign. A monument signed for the Fire Museum is partially depicted in all three versions of Williams' ad. Fire Department spokesman Captain Mike Smaldino said Thursday, He could not comment because of the investigation. After the city denied her filming request, Clark said she filmed elsewhere to ensure she was complying with the city election laws. We did it outside of Colorado Springs, and we did not use logos on purpose, she said. Schroeder did not provide an estimated timeline for when the investigation could be completed, but officials told Gazette partner KKTV on Wednesday it could conclude quickly. It was unclear what, if any, penalty there could be if the clerk determines Williams' ads did violate city code. Well, a date is announced for a new hospital opening, as Brooke Nevins tells us. As Centura Health's new Hospital of the Future in Colorado Springs nears completion, officials announced its anticipated opening date and offered a first glimpse into state-of-the-art innovations 
planned for the site. St. Francis Hospital Interquest, Centura's third hospital in the city, is set to be the first single specialty hospital of its kind in the region with a focus on orthopedic and spine care, said Bill Luke, director of new development for Penrose St. Francis Health Services, the Centura unit for its Colorado Springs operations. The 72-bed hospital southeast of Interstate 25 and Interquest Parkway also will feature a full-service emergency department that is set to open at noon, July the 11th. Surgeries will begin July 12th, Luke said. According to Centura's spokesperson, Lindsay Radford, the specialization is, is much needed in the state and requires specific equipment geared toward mostly elective surgeries. Colorado is a really active state, so there's a high usage of orthopedic services here, Radford said. The InterQuest Hospital will include 64 inpatient beds, 8 critical care beds, which could be expanded to 24 beds, 10 operating rooms with robotic equipment and 30 beds for surgical preparation and recovery, according to previous Gazette reporting. The emergency department will feature 16 bays, Luke said Thursday. The hospital has a price tag of $180 million, or about... $2.7 million per bed, he said. Stepping into a large operating room Thursday, Luke pointed to the ceiling where a high-tech airframe system by SLD technology will direct airflow away from the patient during surgery and shed a special kind of light that disinfects the area. It allows us to be in the room with no detrimental impacts to humans but very detrimental impacts to bugs and to bacteria, Luke said. Most of the building's rooms, including the emergency, inpatient, and operating rooms, will be equipped with two-way telehealth capabilities, allowing a surgeon to consult directly with other providers across the nation during surgery or allow for family visits, Luke said. Connectivity to the outside world and the knowledge within the outside world is important, he indicated. To be cost-effective and more environmentally conscious, Luke said the hospital won't feature wasted space like grand conference rooms or single-person offices, but will include mostly communal workspaces for staff. We believe that health care is changing and we have to be extra efficient so we can bring the best world-class care to our community, he said. Luke believes some of the hospital's most fascinating technology is a Bluetooth and Wi-Fi system that will allow the tracking of people and equipment by connecting to badges on staff members and things like wheelchairs and knee replacement sets so that nothing is lost and staff can find each other easily. The technology will also extend to special patient wristbands, which will allow caregivers to be hyper-efficient, Luke said. For example, a doctor can first check the location of each patient from physical therapy rooms to the bathroom and either locate them for a checkup or no to respect privacy. The technology will also recognize when a care provider enters a patient's room. If you've ever been in a hospital bed, people are in and out of your room all day long, and half the time you don't know who they are, Luke said. So, when a doctor walks in the room, their face and bio pop up on the screen.
while one of two monitors secured to the wall facing the patient's bed will display a patient's electronic medical records like x-ray images that can be moved and drawn upon with touchscreen technology, the other will serve not only as an entertainment unit, but as a way for patients to control their lighting, window blinds, and other conditions as well as order food or call for a caregiver or chaplain. The same functions can be controlled using an iPad attached to a reticulated arm extending from the head of the bed, Luke said. The common spaces in the building will include a coffee shop and cafeteria, a chapel, and a 60-by-40-yard turf field for rehabilitation activities and outdoor relaxation. Construction of a separate medical office building and surgery on the 58-acre site is planned to begin in September. In total, the hospital is expected to employ about 400 people and serve the booming Interquest area. Radford said most of the orthopedic experts will move to the Interquest location, effectively freeing up facilities and services at Centura's other locations. Especially during the pandemic, there was so much need and people waiting so long for care, Radford said. This is a chance to take some of the pressure off some of the other hospitals so they can then withstand having that added patient intake. Well, the Mount Evans name change hits a last-minute snag with tribe objection. Carol McKinley and Marianne Goodland report, The renaming of Colorado's Mount Evans was abruptly halted Thursday, just as the controversial issue appeared to be on a steady uphill climb. The U.S. Board of Geographic Names scheduled the final vote Thursday to change the name of Colorado's 12th highest peak to Mount Blue Sky. But a request from a tribal government for a government-to-government consultation regarding the renaming abruptly halted the meeting. The Gazette confirmed that the unhappy tribal government is the Northern Cheyenne. Tribal Administrator William Walksalong said from his home in Lame Deer, Montana, that he notified the Colorado Board about the renaming on December the 10th, and that the Northern Cheyenne would never approve of the name Mount Blue Sky. We sent a letter and said we hadn't been formally consulted with the state of Colorado. <clears throat> Walks along added no one responded to him. We felt ignored, he said, just like we were ignored at Sand Creek. Walks along and went, said Wednesday night that the Northern Cheyenne support changing Mount Evans' name to Mount Cheyenne Arapaho. He said that the Northern Cheyenne are opposed to the name Mount Blue Sky because Blue Sky is part of the Cheyenne Arrow Ceremony. It's a sacrilege to our tribe to throw that phrase around in public, Walks Along said. The iconic peak will keep the Evans name while the decision remains up in the air. It had taken years of board meetings and 56 naming or renaming proposals to get to this point. On November the 17th, the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board voted unanimously to rename Mount Evans to Mount Blue Sky. <clears throat> that board had to watch Thursday's developments from afar, as it hasn't met since then. The terms of the board's legislative members expired at the end of 2022. New members have not yet been appointed, although they are expected to be named in time for the board's next meeting on April the 6th. 
Mount Blue Sky's name was submitted by the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. Tribal coordinator Fred Mosqueda said he was shocked and disappointed by the last-minute development. To me, everything was in order. We had a celebration in Denver over this new name moving forward. You probably wouldn't do this unless you had a good reason. Blue Sky is a name for the Arapaho people. Governor Jared Polis' support was considered a victory for the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho. Just last week, Polis wrote a letter to the Board on Geographic Names. Quote, After decades of examination with respect to his role and exhaustive resources by both the University of Denver and Northwestern University, then-Territorial Governor John Evans' culpability tacit or explicit for the Sand Creek Massacre is without question, according to the letter. In August of 2021, I formally rescinded the bigoted, inhumane, and legally questionable proclamations made by then-Territorial Governor Evans that led to the Sand Creek Massacre, the deadliest day in Colorado history. Chris Aaron, Communications Director for the Colorado Department of Natural Resources, said for the Colorado Board, the issue is out of its hands. It made the recommendation. In addition, the board bylaws have no provision for revisiting a recommendation. Should the federal board reject the name change, the process would have to start over with a new submission first to the federal board, then forwarded to the state. Ernest House, Jr., a member of the Ute Mountain, uh, Ute, Mountain Ute, was taken aback by the announcement and is in support of the name Mount Blue Sky. I am surprised, given the momentum we have been seeing by the State Renaming Commission, the Governor's Office, local and statewide support, House said. Having said that, a tribal nation requesting consultation is a serious matter. Well, a first-timer finds switchbacks, nervous drivers, and helpful rangers on the Pikes Peak Road. Christian Murdoch and with Kelly Hayes brings us this story. The car drives the Pikes Peak Highway to the top of 14,115-foot Pikes Peak in 2020 as frost covers the trees and summit as seen near Glencoe. Driving up the scenic 19-mile Pikes Peak Highway, you'll be met with views that must just take your breath away, for better or for worse. The drive is part of the experience with, with stunning sights throughout the trip to the top. But for nervous drivers, it can cause panic, said Kate Severson, who has served as lead ranger of the Pikes Peak Highway Ranger since 2019. It's really neat because you're driving up the mountain and you're seeing different light zones as you go up, Severson said. So when you start here at the bottom, you have the more tree area with the pines, and it's really gorgeous as you're going through the forest. Those nervous typically kick in in a, at around mile 13 when drives, drivers arrive above the tree line, Severson said. If there are nervous drivers, we usually tell them, hey, if you get to mile 13 and it was a lot for you, that might be as far as you want to go, she said. Then you get above the tree line and the views really open up from there. And that's why people who are afraid of heights start to get nervous around that spot. 
Then come the switchback roads around mile 16. Although there are guardrails along parts of the road, a large portion remains unguarded because it makes unkeep, uh, it makes upkeep easier, which also can scare apprehensive drivers, she said. One area that people t- do get nervous about around is mile 16, and that's where we have the switchbacks, she said. The lanes are normal size. They are not any more narrow, but because of the light tight turns, people can get nervous. Once above those switchbacks, the road flattens out with gorgeous views following you to the top. So how do rangers spot struggling drivers? One thing you'll see a lot with nervous drivers is they'll start to kind of ride the center line of the road you know, try to edge away from the edge, Severson said. So if we start to see that, we'll try to get their attention, flag them down, and have them talk with, have a talk with them. Other times, tense drivers will alert rangers. Sometimes there will be people who get our attention and just are like, this is too much, I can't do this, she said. In either case, the rangers use different techniques to calm drivers. We see how they're doing. If they're really nervous, talk them through that. That's usually when we intervene, she said. In these situations, the altitude can play a big role, Severson said. So rangers often redirect the driver to focus on their breathing. The summit rests at 14,115 feet above sea level, and you'll have to ascend more than 6,000 feet to reach it. I do really think that altitude can affect how nervous drivers get. Even if they're a little bit nervous, she said, as soon as they become short of breath, it just exacerbates any sort of problem. That could be there to begin with. Because the thin air can intensify panic, the rangers carry pulse oximeters with them. The only time they transport visitors down is if there might be a medical issue, she said. If it seems like the person is having a panic attack or there's some sort of medical issue there, we'll check their oxygen level, she said. If it's below 85 or something, then we might want to look, take, look at actually transporting them down. But most of the time, we just talk them through it and get them to drive themselves down. Pikes Peak Rangers are on duty at all times when the highway is open, Severson said. They only open the road as long as it's safe for driving two-wheel drive vehicles. Rangers are really good at getting a sense for when we can open up, she said. Sometimes we can't even open up at all because the first mile of road is some of the steepest part of the road. And if it's even just a little bit icy, we're like, okay, we don't want people getting stuck or sliding around the corners here, so we won't open. Severson provided some tips to those planning trips up to the top of America's mountain. First, she said, make sure to check the weather on the summit before heading out. A lot of people, when they're planning their trips, they do check the weather, but they check the weather for Colorado Springs and forget that the summit of Pikes Peak is just very different weather-wise. For an accurate forecast of the summit, check the Pikes Peak page of the city's website, which provides the most up-to-date temperature and weather conditions, Severson said. You can also see live videos of the summit from several different outlook points. The second piece of advice from Severson, know your vehicle. Since many visitors to Pikes Peak are from out of town, Severson said, it's common for drivers to be using rental cars 
which are different from what they may be accustomed. Be familiar with the gears in your vehicle, she said. Your brakes can overheat pretty easily, so even if you're in an automatic vehicle, there will be an option for lower gears, and it's tricky because all vehicles are kind of different. Halfway down, there is a checkpoint where rangers check brake temperatures to make sure there's no danger of overheating. All in all, the mountain roads are as safe as any other roads, as long as you focus on the road. And while you're riding along, don't forget to take in the views. Well, according to NOAA, La Nina is gone. Seth Borenstein brings us the story. After three nasty years, the La Nina weather phenomenon that increases Atlantic hurricane activity and worsens western drought is gone, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said Thursday. That's usually good news for the United States and other parts of the world, including drought-stricken Northeast Africa, scientists said. The globe is now in what's considered a neutral condition and probably trending to an El Nino in late summer or fall, said climate scientist Michelle Leroux, head of NOAA's El Nino La Nina forecast office. It's over, said research scientist Azar Escon, who heads Columbia University's El Nino La Nina forecasting. Mother Nature thought, ought, thought to get rid of this one because it's enough. La Nina is a natural and temporary cooling of parts of the Pacific Ocean that changes weather worldwide. In the United States, because La Nina is connected to more <clears throat> Atlantic storms and deeper droughts and wildfires in the West, La Ninas often are more damaging and expensive than their more famous flip side, El Nino. Experts said and studies show, generally, American agriculture is more damaged by La Nina than El Nino. If the globe jumps into El Nino, it means more rain for the Midwestern Corn Belt and grains in general and could be beneficial, said Michael Ferrari, chief scientific officer of Climate Alpha, a firm that advises investors on financial decisions based on climate. When there's a La Nina, there are more storms in the Atlantic during hurricane season because it removes conditions that suppress storm formation. There you have it. Next up, the sanity report delay could stall Letitia Stauch trial, as Zachary DuPont tells us. Issues with the sanity report for Letitia Stauch, who is accused of killing her 11-year-old stepson, Gannon, in January 2020, put the start of her jury trial in jeopardy on Thursday. The report has still not been filed with the court, 4th Judicial District Attorney Michael Allen said at the start of Stauch's pretrial readiness hearing. Allen indicated he and the other attorneys prosecuting the case were ready for trial, but not having the second sanity report was a serious complication. Allen said that if the report was not received before trial, the prosecution could move to exclude the expert conducting the sanity evaluation, who was referred to as Dr. Lewis throughout Thursday's hearing from testifying at trial.
Allen said not having the report borders on bad faith from the defense's expert. This is a dis disrespect to court deadlines, Allen said. I've never seen anything like this. The frustration from Allen was shared by Judge Gregory Werner, who questioned how 13 months after Stotch pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to all charges, and seven months since Stotch's first sanity report was filed with the court, that the defense's report had yet to be filed. Delays in the case have occurred in part because of the sanity evaluation. Initially, Stotch, Stotch 39, pleaded not guilty to the charges, but in February 2022, Werner granted her permission to change her plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. The first mental health evaluation conducted by the psychiatric hospital in Pueblo found Stotch to be sane, Werner said at the hearing in August. Stotch's attorney, Josh Tolini, told the court that he expected the report to be filed next week, but that Dr. Lewis wanted to conduct an MRI on Stotch before filing the report. Werner gave a hard deadline of Thursday for the second sanity report to be filed, regardless if the requested MRI is completed. Convey to your expert that it's not a suggestion, it's not a guideline, it's a deadline, Werner said. If she, Dr. Lewis, wants to testify here in this case, it has to be done by the deadline. Jury selection is set to begin March 20th, and opening statements are scheduled for April the 3rd. At the end of the hearing, Stotch told Werner that she would not dress up for the trial and will wear her El Paso County Jail jumpsuit. It won't matter, Stotch said when Werner told her that wearing a jumpsuit might impact the way the jury views her and that she has a right to dress in civilian clothes for the trial. Allen has said in previous hearings that he anticipates Stotch's trial will last six weeks. Stotch faces 13 charges including first-degree murder, child abuse, and tampering with evidence. In addition to the first-degree murder case, Stotch also faces a second case in which she is accused of attempting to escape from the El Paso County Jail in May 2020. Stotch was arrested in South Carolina in March 2020 and has been in jail since then. She faces life in prison if convicted of first-degree murder. Pikes Peak State College unveils new learning commons, as reported by Nick Sullivan. Students at Pikes Peak State College now have access to a new learning commons equipped with a library and tutoring services, computer lab, cafe area, hangout space, and more. The renovation marks the completion of a $4 million project about a year in the making. The area is the first gathering space of its kind on campus. Mayor John Southers, joined by leaders from the Chamber and Economics Development Corporation, marked the Commons opening with a ribbon-cutting ceremony Thursday. You can feel a renewed energy when you're walking downtown or traveling on a scooter, Southers said of the city's growing investment in downtown renovations and growth. This downtown campus is a big, big part of it. The space is a far cry from the large, empty hallways and outdated classrooms that had characterized the area since its 1986 purchase by the college. The updates make the campus a more stylish and more functional space for the students, 
said PPSC President Lance Bolton. The campus previously did not have a tutoring center, open computer spaces, or even small study rooms, Bolton said, which are a premium on many campuses. We've learned over time at other campuses that those are really popular, those little study rooms where two, three people can get in there and work on a project together, Bolton said. The library area strays from the traditional sense, which calls to mind images of books stacked up for checkout. With much of the college's resource materials gone digital in recent years, the space instead offers access to digital databases. PPSC worked with Nunn Construction and designed partner Horde Copland Mock on the new 13, 13 to 25,000 square foot space. Tyson Nunn, president of Nunn Construction, said his company's mission is to transform spaces into places that matter and people want to be. That was the challenge when he arrived at the old school, 80s looking corridors and rooms. That occupied the space. Pikes Peak State College caters to some of the underdogs, a lot of the underdogs, and they transform their lives. I can get behind that, and none construction gets behind that, none said. They deserve excellent places just like this. Bolton said he hopes more students will stay on campus between classes and to study now that they have a space to do so. It's about connecting and about just being here, being on campus, feeling a sense of belonging and connection to the campus as opposed to the way it was. You just came in, you took your class, there was nowhere to go except for maybe to sit on the hard tile floor in the hallway, Bolton said. We know the more time that students spend on campus, the more likely they will be successful. Meanwhile, District 11 moves closer to opt-in survey policy despite opposition. Nick Sullivan tells us, Controversial surveys that collect data on students' personal thoughts and experiences are one step closer to requiring written consent from parents in Colorado Springs School District 11. The school board on Wednesday supported a revised policy governing research projects, studies, experiments, and surveys. A formal vote to adopt the revision is expected to take place March 22nd. Surveys are given to D11 students automatically unless a parent or guardian chooses to opt their child out. Under the drafted revision, parents and guardians would instead have to provide written consent to opt their child into, rather than out of, surveys that collect information on the following. Political or religious affiliations, mental and psychological problems potentially embarrassing to the student or his family, sex behavior, and attitudes or topics that infringe on the student's privacy. Illegal, antisocial, self-incriminating, and demeaning behavior. Critical appraisals of other individuals with whom respondents have close family relationships. Legally recognized privileged and analogous relationships such as those of lawyers, physicians, and ministers. Income other than that required by law to determine eligibility for participation in a program or for receiving financial assistance under such program. The Healthy Kids Colorado Survey, a confidential and anonymous survey from the Colorado School of Public Health, 
at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora is one of the most notable surveys to be impacted by the revision. Agencies use the information to obtain funding for programs to address identified problems, such as smoking or vaping, and attract behaviors, health indicators, and trends. Administered statewide in the fall of odd years, the survey contains more than 100 questions for middle and high school students regarding a host of topics, including their sexual behavior, drug and alcohol use, thoughts of self-harm and suicide, eating and sleeping habits, bullying, access to guns at home, and other personal lifestyle and health information that some parents think goes too far. What is the intent of this policy? It's to make parents aware of how we're using data and to let our staff and buildings use the data appropriately. The end? Board Vice President Jason Jorgensen said, In a letter sent to the D-11 superintendent and board on the morning before the meeting, El Paso County Coroner Dr. Leon Kelly opposed revising the policy, saying information provided by the Healthy Kids Colorado Survey lets the community know what kids are going through and how to help them. In the past decade, El Paso County has twice experienced survey participation so low among its 15 public school districts that it did not have statistically significant data to share, according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Participation is expected to decrease under an opt-in policy. Board Director Julie Ott called attention to the coroner's letter as she explained why she will not support the revised policy as written. If I'm a parent who wants my kid to take that survey because I believe it benefits the community, then you've taken that away from me, Ott said. People say it has nothing to do with the district and things like that, but it does. It keeps students alive. Board President Parth Melpakim said the decision is not about choosing ignorance. Rather, it's about parental choice. As a father, I'm choosing to protect the innocence of our children. That's my choice I am making now. Mel Packham said, we are trying to build trust and transparency. Among other changes in the revision is the requirement that data collected on identifiable students, that is, from surveys with names attached to them, be shared with parents and guardians in a timely manner. The board did not decide on a specific time frame for the survey data's release to parents, but several members proposed the end of the semester in which the survey was given. Also, under the revision, researchers will be request required to explain in writing any outside organizations that have access to data. Whatever we have to do to make sure the parent is comfortable, then we must just have it to have to do it. Board Director Al Loma said. Colorado residents are identified in fatal crashes as the local residents' deaths mark the 10th and 11th traffic fatalities of the year. Abby Sukup brings us the story. Police have identified two people killed in separate traffic crashes in the Colorado Springs on February 27th. The motorcyclist who died in the fatal crash in northeast Colorado Springs in late February has been identified as 26-year-old Mitchell Smith, according to a news release from police. 
Officials said that on February 27th, police were called to a crash at Cash Laputer Street and Prairie Road. Authorities said the vehicle was traveling north on Prairie Road after stopping at a stop sign, and the rider heading west collided with the vehicle as it entered the intersection. Police said an eyewitness told authorities she believed the rider of the motorcycle was dead. He was later pronounced deceased by medical officials on the scene. Police said the crash is still under investigation and no arrests have been made. Alcohol has been ruled out as a determining factor in the crash. Another crash February 27th left one man dead in a single vehicle traffic crash on the northeast side of the city. Officers found the driver deceased on the scene about 9 p.m. after losing control, leaving the roadway and striking a tree. The driver was identified as Colorado Springs resident Robert Adams, 38. Speed is being investigated as a factor, but police said alcohol does not appear to be a factor in the crash. These were the 10th and 11th traffic fatalities of 2023 in Colorado Springs. Through February 27th of last year, there were three traffic fatalities. Colorado launches a new mediation program for consumers and businesses, as Savannah Mertens reports. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced the creation of a consumer complaint referral program that seeks to resolve issues between consumers and businesses through informal negotiations. Weiser's office said the current consumer mediation program follows a one-year pilot program developed by student interns and recent graduate fellows that has resolved 65 disputes and returned over $127,000 to consumers. The program's expansion will give mediators the opportunity to resolve more complaints. In 2022, Weiser's office received about 18,000 consumer complaints. Some arose out of disagreements or a misunderstanding, not necessarily violations of the law. By establishing this new program, we can address and hopefully resolve a broader range of complaints for consumers, Weiser said in a news release. This program will also help businesses better address consumer concerns and promote model business practices, thereby helping protect more consumers in the future. Weiser's office noted that not every dispute can be resolved through informal talks and, in some cases, Mediation might not be appropriate. To report fraud, you may visit stopfraudcolorado.gov G-O-V, or call 800-222-4444. Turning to the editorial page, we get the Gazette's editorial today as the Dems disgracefully are disgraceful on deadly drugs once again. Much-needed legislation that steps up the penalties for peddling illegal drugs that causes death might be all but dead itself, given the Democrats aligned against it. It's a disgraceful development at the hands of the legislature's ruling party. As reported this week by our news affiliate, Colorado Politics, Senate Bill 23109 makes it a level one felony when anyone sells, dispenses, distributes, or otherwise transfers any quantity of a controlled substance that results in someone's death. The bill applies to any compound in which the controlled substance turns up in any amount. 
and it was expanded in a committee hearing Monday to include Schedule II as well as Schedule I controlled substances. It would be a boon to law enforcement in its efforts to stem Colorado's epidemic of overdoses from illegal drugs such as fentanyl, heroin, and meth. The bill would close a loophole in the law that lets some drug dealers skirt serious consequences due to inconsistent penalties for different lethal drugs. Right now, if two or more such drugs are in the same mix that kills a user, the dealer's lawyers can claim it's unclear which substance caused the death. Raising the penalty to the same, higher level for all drugs that result in death will moot that dilemma. That will make it easier for prosecutors to take more dealers off the streets before they kill again. It's an important bill, and you might think that it has a chance of making it to the governor's desk. Yes, even in a legislature that, having drunk the Kool-Aid of the justice reform and harm reduction dogma, had decriminalized simple possession of hard drugs in 2019. After all, Senate Bill 109 has bipartisan sponsors. Democratic State Senator Kyle Mullica of Thornton and Republican State Senator Byron Pelton of Sterling, as well as the support of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. Yet, as Colorado Politics reported, the bill is at best on life support. It barely passed this week's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing thanks only to the support of Democratic State Senator Dylan Roberts of Eagle, whose day job is as a deputy DA in Eagle County. Democratic Senate President Steve Finberg and fellow Democratic Senate Majority Leader Dominic Marino have said they are no votes on the bill. Same goes for Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Julie Gonzalez, who voted against the bill in committee. What could possibly motivate their opposition? One argument offered against Senate Bill 109 in its committee hearing was that drug dealers don't necessarily mean to kill the victims when they sell them deadly drugs. No, we're not being facetious. One woman unabashedly testified to committee members that in the drug culture we are extremely kind and caring to one another. When she, was, when she one day shared drugs with a friend who then overdosed and died, it was because I didn't want her to be left out. <clears throat> I promise you, I was not trying to murder my friend, she told lawmakers. I was sharing from the goodness of my heart. The upshot of such testimony was supposed to be that prison wouldn't help an addict. But as any DA will tell you, people don't do prison time merely for addiction and haven't in recent history. The point of Senate Bill 109 is to go after the pushers and put them behind bars. That way they can't be kind and caring to even more addicts and kill them. Moving on to the letters to the editor, the first is entitled A Nation of Separate Individuals. It might just have been coincidence, but I was struck by the appearance on Tuesday's op-ed page of the letter from leaders of First Congregational Church and a commentary by Quentin Allen, a School District 11 student. Their mutual subject was D-11 Board's consideration of a staff conduct policy proposal to bar teachers from asking students to declare their pronouns. 
The church leaders oppose the ban while the student has another view. How did, <clears throat> how did the public education community come to this? Where we see student performance in mathematics and reading are below expectations, we continue to seek new avenues to divide the student body. I am stunned by much of the social change going on, some is profound, notably regarding gender identity issues, but the uproar about pronouns seems just plain silly. In recent years, we have seen an expanding list of requirements destined to divide us into finer and finer social segments. Many historic racial issues seem muted today by the increase in marriages across racial and cultural lines. The growth of gender confusion seems to me to be a direct byproduct of the Internet working on insecure teenage minds, magnified by the pandemic and social isolation. The outcome will be a community, state, and nation of separate individuals, and the United States no longer will be united. It's time for the adults in the community to step up and reestablish community standards that are welcoming but community-reinforcing it's time for parents to be parents, loving and caring for young people whose identity confusion might not ebb until well into their 20s. And it's time to call nonsense what it is, especially when it interferes with the legitimate function of public schools. And that letter comes from James Moore of Colorado Springs. The final letter is entitled, The Deputies Deserve Our Respect. Thanks to the Gazette's article on the Yoder feud informing readers of the information available from the sheriff's website. I took some time to read the information provided. I urge everyone to read it. There are 129 pages documenting in detail the various events that have occurred over the past several months. Any rational, unbiased person reading the report, numerous reports and other documents can gain an excellent understanding of the facts associated with the parties involved. What impressed me the most, having been in the military for over 23 years, is the professionalism associated with the actions taken by the deputies. Cussed at, kicked, called pigs, given false information, ignoring lawful commands are just a few of the numerous offenses they had to deal with. It's a sore story of law enforcement officers showing consideration, patience, and fairness under extraordinary circumstances. This letter comes to us from Fred West Wisely of Colorado Springs. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Springs Gazette. My name is Raymond Wallander. AINC programming is brought to you by Warner Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day, Benefits in Action. This organization provides assistance in understanding, accessing, and utilizing healthcare resources. Learn more by visiting www.benefitsinaction.org. That's B-E-N-E-F-I-T-S-I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N or calling 720-221-8354, or emailing info at benefitsinaction.org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org.
or by calling 303-786-7777. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.